podcast. My name is Craig Weberg. I'm a senior editor of financial management at MGMA. Today we're talking about medical coding with experts Beverly Gibson and Christy Good. Could both of you introduce yourself, Beverly? What's your position at MGMA and your expertise on coding? Could you talk to a little bit, us a little bit about that? Well, I'm the I'm a senior advisor here. Uh, I deal with issues on coding and billing, auditing, revenue cycle management in general. All right, it sounds like we've got the right person in the room for our ENM coding discussion today. And also, Christy Good is joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, Christy? I am a senior um, industry advisor at MGMA as well. And my background um, really has been in operations. I did recently complete my CPC and have been doing audits with Bev for the last couple months. So I have a lot of experience more in the in the clinic. All right, fantastic. Today we're going to be talking about E&M codes, what they are, why they're important to medical practices and health systems. Beverly, could you tell us a little bit about more about what they are, actually? What is an E&M code? An E&M code, and, uh, you know, we always like to make things as complicated as possible. It's really just an exam. So... Uh, but where the exam takes place, what happens in that exam, that's how these evaluation and management services are classified. Like, could be inpatient, could be outpatient, could be in the observation area, or that's really more of a status at hospital, could even be nursing home. So they're used all over in all different types of facilities, so that I can see why that would be important. I think you had mentioned that they were the most frequently used code. Yep, they are the most frequently used code. They're also the most difficult to code, and unfortunately, they're also the most highly audited. That's why you really have to know your stuff, because uh, they are gonna be audited and they are not easy to code. Sounds like there's a lot of potential confusion with the coding in this. I've I've uh, worked at MGMA for 19 years, and I've heard a lot about the leveling of the E&M codes and the difficulty in getting them leveled correctly. So uh, it makes sense to shed some light on it. And from the operation standpoint, where I'm uh, used to working with those codes, um, it does affect your productivity. It costs more in overhead if you are having codes or denials sent back to you due to your coding, as well as um, just getting your physicians involved in the conversation of you're missing some areas to get to a certain level of code. So you have the whole process from what the physician um, has submitted based on their documentation that goes to the coder that could come back to the bill physician if it's missing something before it's ever submitted to billing and onto insurances. So with a process, that's why these codes are important. Um, you need to know your codes, what the requirements for each of your codes so that you can more streamline your process, get those bills submitted and your claims paid and get reimbursed more efficiently. And if anybody has ever been involved in an audit, I, I mean by a payer, 
It is not a pleasant experience and uh, takes a lot of work. And so that's a big upheaval to uh, the practice right there, going through all of that and potentially having to pay back money and you know, right. now you're on their radar. So yeah, so it's, it's a good way to uh, cut the risk of audit to right. make sure that you actually are coding these services properly. Because both uh, undercoded is a risk versus overcoding. I mean, you could be paying fees, or you could be missing out on revenue opportunity. It does sound quite complex, and you're saying that it is difficult to code. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, you know what the difficulty is? Dive a little bit deeper into how you get that right. You know, and why is it so difficult? Well, first you have to get the category right, and that's not uh, as straightforward as you might imagine. So is this a new patient? Is it an established patient? Is it an initial in the hospital, initial visit, or is it a subsequent visit? Um, is the patient uh, considered to be observation or inpatient? So you always have to get the category correct to start with, and as I said, it's not necessarily clear cut. But then from there, you have to figure out 50 different elements within every single one of those categories before you can figure out what the level is. And every single one of those 50 elements is not clear cut. Yeah. Yeah, we could. I mean, you, I think you've got a pretty good example yeah, of that, I do. don't you? Actually, I was thinking of the one where we had um, a patient come in that uh, was seen as a follow-up for ER visit with uh, gallstones. And the documentation, um, the provider failed to document the review of the ER records, which would have given them two points under the medical decision-making. The patient had already passed the stone, so the visit actually had to be downcoded two levels than what the provider had listed because of lack of medical necessity. So if you're not hitting those elements or putting in the right documentation, I mean, you have to pay attention to your medical decision-making as well as your medical necessity, as well as your documentation. Right, and I had something similar under medical decision-making where it was unclear from the documentation whether the problem was new to the examiner. If it was, then that would have been an additional three points under medical decision-making, but could not award those points and possibly get to a higher level because it just simply was not clear. And then that sort of ties into if medical decision-making is going to be required as one of the two components for either an established patient, if it's outpatient, or a subsequent visit for inpatient, then you're really uh, not going to be reimbursed properly because that's a required component. And uh, it, it could be that the organization that you work for requires it, or it could be that 
uh, some of your payers require that? That is quite a process. <laughs> Trying to make sense of it here myself, and I've been familiar with these codes for a while. So when you really deep dive deep down into it, you see that uh, there are many, many decision points. And that leads me to ask, so how do medical practices and health facilities make sense of all this? Well, Christy was, was saying that, you know, kind of trying to streamline processes because, oh, the, the provider documents something, the coder gets it and says, oh, wait a minute, uh, this isn't clear, and it has to be, go find the doctor, you send a query to the doctor. Oh, then the auditor gets away and says, wait, this isn't the way we talk about it. So one of the things that we want to do at annual conference in Boston, we have a two and a half hour workshop that's going to go through a lot of these issues and say, okay, this is where you're likely to get controversy uh, between the provider, the coder, and the auditor, and this is a way where you can get everybody on the same page, cut back on the controversy, cut back on the confusion, and move forward. That sounds like that'll be great. I know that there's quite a few people already signed up. I know that every this impacts everyone, mm -hmm. right? Anybody in a medical practice or any health facility has got to get this right to make sure that they are covering themselves both from an over and under coding aspect. And it's important that it's not just the coder that needs to know this or the biller or the physician. It's also your manager, it's the whole, like Beverly was saying, it's everyone um, that needs to know what's going on and the rules and regulations and the proper documentation. What kind of training have you been around or what kind of, in your practices that you both worked at, what what uh, have been some best practices to get everybody on the same page? Well, I, I personally have um, gone through a certification process to be uh, a certified evaluation and management auditor. I, you don't necessarily have to go to those links. Certainly being mm -hmm. a, a certified coder helps, but then it's really getting the players in the same room, round a table, and saying, how are we going to deal with this? Okay, then let's write it up. That's our policy, and that's the, the, the rule by which we're all going to be playing. The other thing is, is actually looking at your denials and seeing why are you getting denied so that you can make changes um, that are appropriate. So um, if you're seeing that you're constantly being denied on something, you know, what is that? And is there a plan that can be put in place to make those corrections? Like medical necessity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes right. you're denied on medical necessity. Okay, well, we have a tool and mm -hmm. other people can develop a tool that will help to determine medical necessity. And it's, it's not hard, it's all about maybe a 20-second process to use the tool, so. What do you think the, I mean, if you had to distill it down, what would be one of the hardest things uh, for people to get their E&M codes uh, coded correctly? Like, mm -hmm. is there something that would be the best place to start? Oh, 
to understand. To understand not only why it's so important, but I know that you've talked about communication patterns, you've talked about writing a standard policy, involving a consultant perhaps, looking at an audit. Are there any templates that people use? Are there? Yes, there are templates. Uh, I will say though that the medical necessity side is one that people don't focus on enough. And it is one side of the same coin. It really has equal weight as all of these 50 elements. So if you don't have medical necessity, it doesn't matter if you hit every single one of these 50 elements. Does it, it, it doesn't help you at all. So uh, first you have to meet medical necessity. And yes, there are templates and um, checklists and things like that where you can go through and, and uh, so forth, but a lot of it is making sure that everybody's on the same page. An example for that one is, say someone came in for a strep throat. They hit all their components for their HPI, their ROS, their exam. Everything is looking good like it would be a 99204 or 99214, depending on new patient or follow-up. However, if the medical necessity is not there to say that it's really a 99204-214, it may only be a 99203, and that's where the medical necessity needs to be considered. I mean, you always need to consider it, but that would be an example where you could overcode and actually get penalized for, you know. For medical necessity. So uh, that goes back to the example of that you were giving about the stone that had been passed. This patient was a new patient, uh, was coded as a level four, 99204. Well, really and truly, uh, per medical necessity, uh, there's a question on our tool, which is, and it's questionable whether the patient ever needed to be seen that day. What had happened, the patient goes into the ER and is having difficulty the difficulty passes, literally passes the stone, then, um, uh, but they say, hey, follow up with a, your doctor or a doctor. Well, patient goes in, you know, follows to the letter, but did not really need to be seen. So that's, that by medical necessity, the level is a two, even though actually the provider did a full exam and so on and so forth and at that point was a 99204 but for medical necessity it did a lot of work that was actually unnecessary right so you so that makes that sense pay attention to yeah, yeah. Exactly. so you got to be precise on many levels you got to be precise at the exact point of care or it can come back to bite you in an audit I've got another question about E&M's proposed E&M coding regulations. What are these proposed changes and how will this impact what we've talked about today or will it? It will, um, although I think some people may have heard these things in the news and they may be thinking, hey, oh, we don't need to know anything about the these uh, documentation guidelines anymore, so, you know, it's all obsolete. 
Well, actually, well, for one thing, uh, they haven't, you know, it's proposed, nothing has gone through, but even were they to go through as proposed, uh, a and E&M code can still be evaluated based on three criteria, two of which are in existence right now. So everything we just talked about, the 1995 guidelines, 1997 guidelines, that will still be in effect, or the time-based, if more than half of the visit is based on counseling or coordination of care, that will still be in existence. The new proposal is that a visit could be leveled simply on medical decision-making. I say simply on medical decision-making, knowing that medical necessity would still have to be there. But medical decision-making is one of the three components of the 1995 and 1997 guidelines, so you're still there. And the two examples that we gave were on medical decision-making, and you can see there's already plenty of room for controversy, confusion right there, so you still have to know your stuff. Well, all right. Well, thank you both for giving us a little peek into the complexity of E&M coding, the importance of E&M coding, and what your session is going to be covering at annual conference. We want to thank both of you for your time and expertise. Beverly and Christy will be providing a deep dive education session at MGMA 2018 annual conference in Boston. The session will take place from 9.30 to noon on October 3rd. That's a Wednesday. Visit mgma.com slash events to learn more about the MGMA annual conference. Thank you for joining us today.